I think, in a long time. It was really exciting. So I'm excited about what God wants to do in our lives here today as a church family. So, Father, we come before you today. We believe, Lord, that you want to bring about a tremendous change inside the human heart. That's the essence of the gospel, that it brings about a transformation. Now, Father, I pray today that your spirit would come upon us in a fresh and vital new way, Lord, bringing about deliverance, hope, uh, challenge, change in our lives, that, Lord, we will leave filled with divine purpose from you, Father. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Wes Sillinger wrote in a book, One Church from the Fence, he said, I've spent long hours in intensive care in the waiting room watching people walk through those moments of anguish, listening to the urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without a companion of 30 years? Well, the intensive care waiting room is probably different than any other place on the planet. It really is. Something changes inside there. The people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is actually rude. The distinction of race and class quickly melt away. A person is a father first and a person of a different color second. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his, and everyone seems to get it. Each person is pulling for the other family just as much as they're pulling for their own. As a matter of fact, in the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only my loved one would show improvement. And everyone knows that loving someone else is what life is all about. How many know that's true? And especially when you think that you're going to lose the person you love. That's when it really intensifies. Long before we're in the intensive care waiting room, maybe we can learn to live like that. Well, that's a great aspiration. How many say that's true? If we could only learn to live allowing love to rule our hearts for one another. I think people long for an environment where loving concern is the rule of life. How many know that's true? We all want to be loved. It's not one person in this room can say to me, I don't really want to be understood. I don't really want to be loved. I don't really want to be cared for. I know that that's not true. Deep inside of our soul, there's a yearning to be understood and to be loved. It's what people hope and desire when they come to church, a place where everyone is pulling for you, caring for you, hoping that you'll become all that God intends for you to be. But then the question is, why then is this picture not often the reality? Why is it that we even have conflicts you know, in our families, or we have conflicts in our church relationships? That's a good question. I mean, I've read the New Testament. When people say, you know, why can't we be like the early church? I go, which one? Because there's so many of them that had issues, and there was conflict even amongst themselves. Isn't that true? Selfish ambition comes in, polarization. There's all kinds of things that come in. We're actually battling. Not only there's a spirit in the world that is anti-Christ, but you know what? We find that sin itself invades our own soul, and sometimes we have our own selfish ambitions going on, and it creates tensions in our relationships. Though there are some people, I believe, who desire the very best for others. I mean, there are some people in this church family. They're amazing. 
And I've gotten to know people over the last 31 years or longer. You know, I, we came to this church almost 35 years ago when there was just a handful of people. And I can honestly say uh, some of God's greatest saints reside in this local church. I mean, it's, it's an amazing church. But you know what? At times, you know, there's, there's moments where we haven't all behaved the way we ought to have. And there's not probably one person in this room, even if you walked with God for a while, you can honestly admit you've had some bad days. Anybody here willing to admit you've had some days that you didn't like yourself? There were some days you probably had to go talk to God and say, you've got to straighten me out. There's got to be some change in my life, Lord. Help me become the person I need to be. You know, there's always people who attend church who I believe have never really had an encounter with the author of unselfish love. I'm, it's serious. I mean, you know, we can, we can grow up in the church, we can hear the gospel, we can hear about God, you know, but we've never really, it's been very personalized to us. We've never had that real experience with God that brings about transformation in our lives. And so I think we have to evaluate, you know, God, have I really met with you? Have I really had this change of heart in my life? Um, and then another reason I think why the environment is not always all that we long for is that people who are in, are, are in various states of spiritual maturity, isn't that true? Not, you know, because some people are just starting out and a lot of rough edges still that God's got to work on in our lives. And even some of us that have been Christians for a long time, there's a, still a few rough edges God's got to smooth off. Isn't that true? And so God is still working, bringing us up to a state of spiritual maturity. Carnality, uh, that's a nice word of, you know, basically we're, we're living selfish lives. You know, that, that's we're living for ourselves. Uh, is expressed in all of our lives in various degrees, and it hinders the flow of God's love that could come through us. Patrick Morley has rightly stated regarding our spirituality that the height of our love for God will never exceed the depth of our love for one another. Well, that, that's a very profound statement. What is he saying? Unless you and I really love people, we can't really say we love God. And actually, to the degree that I love other people is really a measure is to the degree that I actually love God. So I can actually evaluate where is my love life at towards God. And it's measured by how I'm treating the people around me. Because when I see people, I should be looking at them and I be, should be seeing Jesus. And I'm ministering to Jesus when I'm seeing the people around me. What a challenging portrait that would be. So last Sunday, I began a message that I want to finish today. And I started by sharing two warnings that Jesus gave that would destroy close relationships, that would create unhealthy dysfunction, brokenness in family life. And I, and I, and I talked about those things. You know, how many know when we have unhealthy relationships, we can't have healthy community? Isn't that right? And so let's take a look at what brings about a healthy community. Well, I think it comes as a result of transformed relationships. It starts there. When, when something happens inside of me where I'm transformed in my relationship with God, it starts impacting my relationships with people around me. And the first warning had to do, it, do with being a hypercritical or a fault-finding type of person. And I spoke a length at that. And people, I'd say, who behave like this are generally deeply wounded. They are hurting people in need of a great healing. So you know a lot of times people are prickly. I think it's because they've been wounded many times in their lives. And what we need to be praying for, instead of you know, just writing people off, we should be praying, God, you're the great physician. You could bring emotional healing into that life and transform that person. That's what the church is all about. That's why we want to love the people that are coming in because God has the power to change the brokenness in all of our lives. Jesus 
you know, in that passage there earlier in chapter 7 talks about removing the beam in our own eye to take care of the speck in our brother's eye. Remember that little passage of scripture? And it is the truth. You know, it's so easy sometimes to see the problem in somebody else's life, but we're missing what's going on in our own. And, you know, it's not that we're not supposed to help other people overcome their issues, but Jesus says, listen, you better take care of your own first. Start with yourself. You know, get straightened out and then work on trying to help others. Now, the other extreme, which contributes to destroying relationships, is the person who lacks the ability to discern. They have no discernment in their life. In other words, we have to learn how to discriminate between what is right and what is wrong. And the Bible teaches us that. You see, God is the one that sets the plumb line between what he considers healthy and unhealthy. See, I consider right and wrong, I could change the words. I could say healthy and unhealthy. It's the same idea. If I'm a healthy person, I'm going to do the right things before God. If I'm doing unhealthy things, I'm doing what God considers to be evil, and it's going to be destructive to myself and to those around me. So we need to discover which is the right path. So I want to take a look today at two concepts that facilitate this transformed relationship that leads to healthy communion. Just look at two things, and Jesus is going to bring this out here on the Sermon of the Mount. And the first one uh, is to persevere in prayer. It's it's really interesting. I, I you know I was reading this this text of scripture, and a lot of the commentators, you know, they're trying to tell you, yeah, well, this section now doesn't relate to what previously went on and what follows. And I've always disagreed with that concept because I believe that every time you look at texts in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a reason why the writers put them where they do. And I think that the fact that Jesus now starts talking about prayer, and it almost seems like it's a different topic, but I don't think it is. I think it relates to how this is going to foster this business of judging. And, and, and then you read in verse thir- uh, 12 where he says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So I think, you know, don't judge lest you be judged and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That to me is the whole section. I'm widening it out and I think they talk about relationships. That's why I'm bringing it out this way. So you say, well, pastor, uh, why is it then that you're bringing prayer as part of the transformation needed to be a healthy person? I'm glad you asked that question. And here's my answer. Because when you start praying, what is prayer? It's a word we use to talk about relating to God. It's a word we're using to talk about communing with God. It's a word we're using to talk about building and fostering a relationship with God, is it not? And what I'm going to argue today is simply this, that when God comes into my life, when God comes into your life, something happens to us as individuals. And when God starts moving in my life, and I'll pick on my wife now because she's sitting right here, Patty. So Patty and I, when, when we're together as a couple, when God comes into the picture, it affects our relationship with each other. How many believe that? And so when her and I start praying and we, we're sharing our concerns and we pray for each other, I notice that what happens is instead of becoming critical or frustrated or upset with one another. Now we're talking to God. God is included inside of this relationship. And some of the things that her and I cannot change, maybe we're concerned about our children or our grandchildren or the church or some of you, then we can just begin to pray about it. It changes how we're responding to those situations. And so all of a sudden, I'm convinced, as the older saints once said, a family that prays together 
stays together. I know it sounds cliche, but if you really evaluate most of the couples that are having marital problems, the first question I usually ask them is, are you praying together? And you know what the answer is? No. First thing, right off the top. And that's because that's one of the most important ingredients in building healthy, meaningful relationships. You know, a lot of people that are not Christians, they can have a relatively good relationship because they're relating to each other on a physical level. They can relate to each other on a social level. But you and I as Christians, we can relate on the highest possible level, which is a spiritual level. And that actually enhances all the other levels. Isn't that amazing? So if you can fix the top level, all the other levels get repaired. So we have to work at the highest possible level. So maybe some of you are saying, you know, I'm really struggling in my marriage and I'm struggling in my relationship. I'm frustrated. Try praying with each other. And you'll say, well, it's hard to do, Pastor, because you know when you're praying, you can't have grudges. You have to take care of those things. You have to ask for forgiveness. You've got to do some work. And that's the healthy stuff that I think brings about healthy relationships. You know, Jesus now, he, he talks about the necessity of persevering in prayer. You know, some of us will say, well, yeah, I did that for a while, but I stopped doing it. How many can honestly say, I had a good prayer life, but I stopped doing it? Or I, I know I was doing good in this area, but I stopped doing it. Listen to what Jesus says in one of his parables in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not to give up or not to faint, one translation says. I think there's a lot of fainting saints. There's a lot of people giving up way too soon on their relationships. They're giving up on all kinds of stuff. There's no perseverance in their life. Listen, if you're going to succeed in life, you have to develop a thing called perseverance. And those are the people that experience the fruit of all the effort they've put into it because they persevered right to the very end. Let's pick up our, our message here, chapter 7, and beginning in verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which one of you, if you ask a son, your son asks for a bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If then you... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So right now, we have this, this little, what I would call an injunction or an exhortation or uh, a command in some sense. He's telling us, listen, this is what you need to do you know, if you're going to facilitate God's presence in your relationships. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, I know prayer is important, Pastor. If I know prayer is so important, why is it that I pray so little? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why don't I pray more? You know, if I really believe that prayer changes things, if I believe that prayer changes me, if I believe that prayer is going to have an impact in my life, if I believe that, you know, God's the one that's controlling the universe and that there are going to be challenges in life, why is it that we don't pray as much or could pray a little more? Well, maybe the problem of little or no praying is that we feel that life is well in hand. In other words, things are working for us. We don't see the need for it. See, Max Lucado wrote this, prayer only makes sense when you quit trying to do ministry yourself. You know, in other words, you're, you're, you're not 
you're not just doing what you can do. You know, most of us in this room, we only do what we can do. How many would like to do more than you can do? Anybody like to go beyond what you can do? How many would like to see God start to do things that we've never done before? Anybody up for that challenge? Okay, so now, he says, I learned that as things go smoothly, I pray less. Isn't that true? I'm just relaxed. I mean, things are going. It's, everything's fine. But I notice when I'm in a difficult time or in a crisis moment, and as the crisis intensifies, I notice my prayer life starts moving. <laughs> no, we've got to learn how to pray. Okay, let me move on here. He says, as our goals shrink, as things become more manageable, I pray less. But as we reach out, stretch ourselves, and tackle God-sized dreams, he says, I pray more. Do you know why we don't pray a lot? Because I'm convinced we're satisfied with mediocrity and really undervaluing what God wants to do in our lives. Now you say, well, what's, where's, where's the real pressure in the city of Red Deer? Well, let me give it to you from my vantage point. I'm looking at a community in great distress. I'm looking at a community, there's tremendous crime, there's so much brokenness, so much addiction. Is anybody going to argue this point with me? Nobody's going to argue these points with me. And yet we seem to be content with, well, that's terrible. Maybe we should just hire more police officers. That's our response to the problem. How many think that's probably not going to change much? It hasn't to this point. We just keep adding more police force, more police force. But you know what? That's not changing. That's actually trying to address the symptom of a deeper problem. What would happen if all of a sudden people became transformed individuals? What happens if God's spirit would come and deliver people from their drug addictions? What would happen? What would happen? The crime rate would start diminishing quickly. How many say that's true? What would happen if instead of marriages falling apart left, right, and center, all of a sudden people experience the grace of God and you know, the very person that they once fell in love with, you know what, they work through those differences or their challenging moments and reconnected at a level they'd never have before and really begin to value and appreciate that person and work through that tough patch in their life. What would happen to the children now in that home? Wouldn't that be a more stable environment instead of, you know, having blended families and passing kids around back and forth and causing a lot of emotional duress in a child's life? I'm just, what would happen? What would happen if transformation would start happening in our community? You see, that's what really what I'm getting at today. When you bring God into the equation, change begins to happen at an amazing level. You know, it was interesting. Years ago, I watched a documentary on this clip called Transformation. Anybody see that? I think I showed it in the church, you know, maybe 20 years ago. I know it's been a while. But in Transformations... Uh, what they did was they documented what happens when God's spirit came into a community. And they, they actually went to different parts of the world. One of them was in eastern Canada, one, one of the Inuit villages there. How many know that in some of those villages, the suicide rates are skyrocketing, there's alcoholism, that's, you know, uh, abuse, child abuse, you know, isn't that true? And then all of a sudden, a few people were praying and the Spirit of God came into these communities and literally, there was maybe a couple of people in the church, pretty soon you come back 
Five years later, and the church is full, and there's people's hands raised, and they're worshiping God, and there's a total change. You know, the rate of alcoholism is diminished, maybe not eradicated, but deeply diminished, and all of a sudden, there's healthy relationships happening. That's a transformation in a community. You know, they went to Nairobi, Kenya, one of the cities in, I, I think it was Nairobi, but I'm not, don't quote me on that, but they went to Kenya, city that was one of the worst communities in the nation. Crime, addiction, all the problems, you know, AIDS, name it. Then all of a sudden, you know, the church became alive and praying and seeking God and transformation happened in their community. What an amazing thing that began to happen, you know. You know, I, I, sp I spent actually one year studying on revival because I wrote my dissertation on it because I wanted to understand what happens when the Spirit of God comes into the life of the church in an unusual way, which is what we would call revival. See, the Holy Spirit is always at work, but there are seasons when the Holy Spirit comes in an unusual way, and that's what we call revival. That's a transformation. That's what Pentecost was, a moment in time when the Spirit of God came in an amazing way, and the church was transformed. And Martin Lloyd-Jones actually wrote a book on it. He actually preached a series of sermons in 1959 to commemorate the 1859 revival in Wales. And he began to explain what happened in that hundred years previously in the great move of God. And then he traces it all the way. He says, the greatest hindrance to revival. Aren't you fascinated? What is the number one reason why we're not experiencing this transformation? And this is what he said. The greatest hindrance to revival is our self-reliance. I can do it all by myself. Thank you very much, God. I don't need you. And whenever we get that mentality, we, and you see, well, you say, I don't think that way, Pastor. We may not think it, but we behave it. You say, how do you know we behave it? Because we don't really put God in the essence, in the center of our being. We're not really pursuing God. Can I challenge you this morning and say that your life dream may be too small for God? He may have something far more significant for you to be involved in, and yet you and I are willing to settle for a lower level of life. It is true. It is possible that God wants to stretch our faith. God wants us to, you know, rev up our engines and say, hey, God wants us to move beyond what you and I think we're capable of doing. And you know what? God says, there are things I want you to do that with you and I doing it, we, it can be done. But you alone, yes, you're right. You've you finally figured out how, how much or how little you can do. And you're living in this little world. And God says, but I want to partner with you today. I want to come beside you as an individual. I want to come beside you as a family. I want to come beside you as a congregation. I want to take you to a place you've never been before. But you need to depend on me to get to that place. How many recognize the Israelites would have never gone into the promised land if God had not brought them in there? They were incapable of going in there by themselves. They accurately saw themselves as they really were. But the two spies came back and said, but God promised. And if God be for us, who can be against us? We can take this land for Almighty God. Revival. What does it mean? It means God's presence manifests in a greater way to invigorate and empower his people to fulfill his purposes. As long as we think we can do something, God will let us continue trying. He'll just let us struggle. It's only when we come to the end of ourselves and stop trusting in what we do and have turned to him completely that he begins to move in a powerful way. I don't know about you, but I'm at that stage in my life where I'm going, let's do it. 
Let's go for it. And I don't know, this has been an amazing week for me. The Spirit of God has just been prompting and dropping things inside of my soul that's really been challenging me personally. I love what the Scottish preacher of two centuries ago, Alexander McLaren, pointed out. We may have as much of God as we will. In other words, we have as much as we really deeply want. So you're saying, well, if I'm, I'm satisfied. And if we're not satisfied, then we get a hunger and we begin to pursue. He says, Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber in your hands and bids us take all that we want. In other words, we can have as much as we want. God says, I'm inviting you. You know, go after it. And then he uses this interesting illustration. He's Scottish, right? If a man is admitted into the bullion vault of a bank and told to help himself, and he comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he's so poor? That's quite an avid illustration, right? Now you have access to all of the... Re- you, you and I have access to the riches of heaven. And we walk up and go, well, this is all I get. He's saying that's because that's all you've received. You didn't ask. Ask and you shall receive. I'm not talking about material things here, guys. I'm talking about growing in a relationship with God. God says, I want to do so much more in your life and in my life. So he encourages us to persevere. He says, ask seek and knock, are stated in a continuous present tense. In other words, God is suggesting that we have to continue to do this. Is there perseverance involved? You know, I was so struck by how we usually pray. We ask, it says, ask and you shall receive. But what happens when God decides, I want to see how, how much you're going to persevere? We ask and we don't receive. What do we do? We stop. Then he says, seek Now, I think that asking is one dimension. Seeking means I have to take things to another level. You know, most of us just ask. We stop. We don't come to the place of seeking. Seek, and what will happen? You'll find. Then I love the last one. Knock. Now, think about knocking. How many know that you don't have to knock if the door's open? This may be obvious to all of us. I don't know, but when you knock, it's because it's a closed door. And how many times do we come in life when we come up to something and it appears to us that the door is closed? But God isn't saying no. He's telling us to what? Now, if nobody's home, the door doesn't open. If God doesn't want you to go through the door, you can knock all you want to. The door's not going to be opened. But how many of us are knocking? God says, this is your door. And we, don't even, we come up to the door and it's closed and we just go, oh, door's closed and we give up and we walk away. I think we need to have a little more perseverance in that. God is encouraging us. Hey, come up to the door. You need to knock. God goes, I was waiting for that knock. And he opens the door. And how many know that things are far sweeter when they're actually more challenging and more difficult when you finally attain and achieve that which is difficult? Isn't that the truth? How many can say that's true? You know, it, it's nothing when, you know, you come up and you get everything you ask for right away. It, you, don't, you don't really value or appreciate it. But when something is challenging and difficult and you've been persevering and praying and seeking and then knocking and the door opens, wow, is that an exciting moment. Isn't that the truth? That's far more exciting. Just checking my time here. You know, in it, it's so interesting in, in prayer that that he says here, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? In other words, I mean, God knows he's not going to give us something evil if we ask him for it. Do we realize that? Actually, when Luke tells us this account, he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? 
You know, a lot of times we're asking God for things when we should be asking God for himself. You know what? Isn't that far greater? Hey, I'll tell you what. You can ask for anything you want to. I just want to ask for God. Because if I have God, I've got everything I need. Think about that. I'm going to hang with God. I'm just going to go where God goes. And if God wants something done, it happens. So you and I need to shift. God, this is my agenda. It's puny. Here's God's agenda for you. Far greater. Hang with God. Figure out what he wants. Walk with him. Let him, you know, he's paying the freight, folks. When you're going Dutch, you're on your own. You're paying for everything. But when you walk with God, God says, I'll pick up the tab. I'll take care of it. If this is my will, I'll pay the bill. We need to understand that with God. You know, he wants to give us himself. You know, Fred Hartley wrote a book, My House Shall Be a House of Prayer. And he named eight distinctives between a church that prays and a church devoted to prayer. Or as he says, a church that prays versus a church that truly is a praying church. Let me, let me give you the eight here. And it's challenging. I had to go through this list and I went, ouch. You know, because yes, I think we pray. I'm skipping Augustine's uh, illustration here. Let me give you these eight. Number one, a church that prays fits prayer in. A church devoted to prayer gives prayer a priority. You know, I know we have different times and seasons of prayer in our church, but I still don't think, I, I think we're a church that prays. I don't, think, I don't think that's a problem. I think people are praying here. But are we devoted to it? And devoted to it in a way that we're trying to line up with God. Number two, a church that prays, prays when there are problems. A church devoted to prayer prays when there are opportunities. That's a little different. How many see that? You know, right now, my mind is flowing. I'm thinking, I'm dreaming, I'm going, God, is this really you? I'm just asking, you know, because there are tremendous opportunities. I believe we can become a transformed church. I believe we can transform our city. I believe we can become such a transformed church that we can replicate and reproduce transformation in other communities. How many are going, Pastor, I'm going to agree with you on that. Because you see, you and I can only reproduce what we are. So I'm going, why would God want to reproduce mediocrity? Now, I don't think we're mediocre, but I think we can go to a whole new level. Wouldn't it be awesome if we had a tremendous transformation happening in our church family that, you know, that we could actually bring it to other parts of our nation? Number three, a church that prays announces a special time of prayer and summon the church show up. A church devoted to prayer announces a special time of prayer and the entire church shows up. I know that we're just a praying, we're not, we're not, we're not devoted to prayer yet, guys, because when we call prayer and fast, we get maybe 100, 200 people. Listen, there's 900 people that attend this church right now on an average. That's not the entire church. Can you imagine? Everybody shows up saying, this is important. We're going to pray. You know, what are we praying for? This great opportunity. We're not just praying for the problems in our lives. No, we're praying for what God is laying before us. He's saying, this is the land I want you to possess together. We're going to do it in community powerful. You know, a church that prays asks God to bless what it's doing, but a church devoted to prayer asks God to enable it to do what he's blessing. In other words, we're moving off of what we're doing to God, what are you doing? We want to be there. See the difference? We're shifting our agenda. 
A church that prays is frustrated by financial shortfall and then backs down from projects. A church devoted to prayer is challenged by financial shortfalls and calls for fasting, prayer, and faith. In other words, we're just going to plow through this. And by the way, you're in a church that's done this. You wouldn't be in this place right now. This is a miracle church. This is what we had to do. We had to step out and believe God when we didn't have it. And some of you were with me on the journey. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And God provided. Isn't that beautiful? God will provide when it's his will, folks. Number six, a church that prays is tired, weary, and stressed out. A church devoted to prayer mounts up with wings like eagles, runs and doesn't grow weary, walks and does not faint. How many want to go for that? I want to walk in the spirit, hallelujah. I don't want to be, you know, stressed out and weary and frustrated. I want to be full of the spirit and God's carrying us. There's a, do you know, I had an experience in India. I spent the, because, you know, how many know you're in a totally different time zone? You want to talk jet lag? You know, you get there, you teach and work all day, and then you don't sleep all night. I've had that. And I prayed all night long, and I got up the next day and taught the whole day as if I'd had a full night's sleep. You go, how is that possible? Waiting on the Lord. Waiting. You know, Jesus spent all night in prayer. Some of us, you go, that's not physically, humanly possible, is it? Yes, it is. That's a, how many think that's, that's amazing? We could live like this. Number seven, a church that prays does things within its means. A church devoted to prayer does things beyond its means. I love that. Okay, God, what's the assignment? Oh, that's beyond our means. God goes, yeah, I know, but I'm in it. I'm in it. If God is in it, it's going to be far bigger than what we can do. Number eight, a church that prays sees its member as its parish. A church devoted to prayer sees the world as its parish. Everybody needs to be one. We're going for the whole world, guys. Uh, Lynn, thanks for being with me on the journey. <laughs> I'm just challenging you. What am I telling you to do? Lift up your eyes. Get a greater vision, right? Okay. You'll think about it. Let me move on to the second concept that facilitates healthy relationships, to treat each other lovingly. You know, many of us have heard the golden rule. I, a lot of people try to live by it, which is great. You know where it came from? Jesus. He taught the golden rule. Listen to it. Matthew 7, 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, I love this, and I never realized this before, but one of the commentators, Robert Muntz, he says this, in its negative form, it was found prior to Jesus. In other words, here's how Confucius once said it, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others, Okay? That's stated in this negative form. You follow that? Jesus says, no, what you want to have done for yourself, do to others. That's the positive form. Okay, so it's stated in its negative form. Socrates says, whatever angers you when you suffer it at the hands of others, do not do it to others. In other words, when you've been wounded, don't retaliate. However, in its negative form, the golden rule could be satisfied by doing nothing. Think about that. I just don't retaliate. I don't do anything. Right? But that doesn't work the way Jesus states it in the positive form. In the positive form, it moves us to action on behalf of others. It calls us to do for others all those things that we would appreciate being done for us. Now we have moved from justice to active benevolence. That's powerful. What is he saying? 
You see, you and I, and, and, you know, and I, I'm going to say this, because a lot of Christianity in North America is very passive. And what I mean by, you say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? We, this is what we think. Well, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm a Christian. Be careful. James says, you know, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You can say that you have faith, but if it doesn't move you to action, you don't have biblical faith. That's what James tells me. See, we're so worried about adding to God's grace as evangelicals that we tell people it's by faith alone, in Christ alone, right? And therefore, we don't do anything. We, we don't want to add to anything for our salvation. Can I just explain to us, if you're truly saved, it will change everything about your life. It'll change your relationships, and it'll change your activities. And if it doesn't do that, you don't have the real McCoy. You just are being seduced by believing you have an intellectual, mental assent to truth. Because James goes on to say, even the devil believes in God. And what good does that do him? He knows God exists. So when people say, well, I believe in God, yeah, that's great. But you gotta believe in a savior who transforms the human heart and causes you to walk in followership after him, right? And you're gonna end up doing stuff. It's not that you're doing things to be saved. You're doing things because you are truly saved. You see the difference? Okay. Well, let me close uh, another story. Let me close a couple, one, one quote and one story. How far you go in life. This is George Washington Carver, if you know anything. He was a, 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 a person who was in slavery who was freed, okay? And this is what he says. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving and tolerant of the weak and strong because someday in life you will have been all of these. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's a challenge. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. In other words, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount is be generous to other people. Be loving to other people. Be kind to other people. Be forgiving to other people. In other words, be full of the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And then Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then it says joy and peace. But really, it's singular. It's the fruit, and it's love. And all those other elements describe what real love is. So God is asking us to be loving people, which I think comes through the work of the Spirit in our lives. You know, Marianne Bird writes in this book called The Whisperer Test. She says, I knew... Growing up, I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to them. A little girl with a misshaped lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. How many know that's a huge disadvantage starting out? So when their classmates asked what happened to your lip, she usually told them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born differently. I was convinced that no one outside my family could actually love me, and yet there was a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored. Her name was Mrs. Leonard by name. 
She was short, round, happy, sparkly lady. And annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in class, and finally it was my turn, and I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at the desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back to her. She'd say things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? And I waited there for those words that God must have put in her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. God says to every person that's been defected and deformed by sin, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. What a powerful statement. The only way you and I can truly live out a life of love, a transformational life, is by being in the presence of the living God. Isn't that the truth? It's the only way. I need to be changed by God. You need to be changed by God. And out of that dynamic, intimate, meaningful relationship with God flows his love. And folks, that kind of love does not originate from human beings. It originates from God. Let's stand. I want us to pray today. With every head bowed, and in this room today, I think the Holy Spirit's been speaking to our hearts collectively. I know He's been speaking to mine. You say, you know what, Pastor? I can honestly say that I need a transformation in my soul. I need a fresh encounter with the true and the living God so that love would flow from me. And if that happens to me, I will be a transformed person. And when that happens, it will foster all kinds of different responses. It will create a healthier marriage. It'll create a healthier relationship with people around me. And can you imagine a congregation transformed like this? With the spirit of the living God, heaven is open. And I shared this last Sunday in my, my reading, that one little two verses, three verses. Oh, that the heavens would be rent, be torn, and that God would come down. His spirit would invade our souls today. And just like he says, a twig is burnt, which changes and transforms its characteristics. Or even as a water would move towards steam, a transformation in its nature. God, would your spirit come today? Would you bring about that kind of change in me? If that's your cry, just raise your hand today. You know, it, it means I'm going to have to change even, you know, where I'm at with God. You know, just look at your prayer life for a minute. You say, you know, are you praying and saying, God, this is not just about my agenda. What do you have for me, God? I want to be a person. You know, my, my cry is, God, help me and our church family to being a praying church. 
where we, when we, when we just ask you guys to come, you're there praying. When opportunities come, you're saying, God, I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to be walking in your agenda because I don't want to live a mediocre life. You know, I want to live a life of significance because I'm walking with you. I'm walking with you. That's where you're at today. Just raise your hands. We're going to pray right now. Just open our hearts to God. Say, Lord, would your spirit come in? Would that transformation now begin to work inside of me? Lord, I just cry out to you. We need you so desperately. When I look at our culture today, when I look at our community today, and I see so often we just accommodate the values of our culture. Lord, it's not helping. Our culture is just fraying and falling apart. We see it. And Lord, we know that it'll take transformed people to transform a community. Changing political parties is not going to do it. That's not the answer ultimately. The answer ultimately is a transformed church. It's a transformed people. And I pray today that we would become those people, oh God, that you, Lord, would bring such an awareness of your divine presence that you would come down even as you did on the day of Pentecost and bring about that kind of a change into lives that had been broken with failure and disappointment but yet knew there was a better way, knew that they wanted to do your will but they were not capable of doing it in their own strength. But now they were waiting on you. And there was a day when your spirit broke in upon their souls and it made them powerfully bold and courageous and they were transformed individuals that began to live out your purposes and your agenda for their lives and for their community and communities. Their church changed. That church grew. That church impacted Jerusalem. That church sent people out all around the Mediterranean world. Churches started up because people were experiencing a transformed life. And I pray today, Father, that you would answer this cry, that we would become those people. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.